Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. Now, we gather every Sunday morning in person at 1030 a.m., but obviously, if you're watching or listening to this, you're online with us, and we have audio versions of this on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You just have to search Faith on Hill for all of our online content. The video version is live-streamed on our website, faithonhill.com, and put up on our Facebook page. But we believe that if you're here online, that's totally cool. Uh, there are people who are not able to come on Sunday mornings, people who are hesitant to be connected in person to a church community. Uh, maybe you're on vacation, but you're normally with us on Sunday mornings. Uh, you know, whatever the reason, you're welcomed here. And we meet in person on Sunday mornings, and then we spread out into small groups throughout the week. And you can email small groups at faithonhill.com for more information. But I get that if, if you say, I can't be in person, that's totally fine. We have an online small group that meets on Wednesday nights, and you can email small groups at faithonhill.com for more information. There's also people who are just checking church out. Uh, maybe you had a, a toxic church experience in the past. Maybe you, you have questions and you're not really ready to connect. You can email me. My name's Adam, and you can email adam at faithonhill.com, and I'd love to connect with you and talk with you. There's an invitation to join us as we try to walk in the ways of Jesus. We're still in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking at chapter 9 of the Gospel of Matthew. And my hope is that after this morning, you will lose your religion. Let's take a look at what God's Word says. How do you define religion? Everybody has their own definition. It doesn't matter what the dictionary says. It just matters what you think religion means. So I am going to define the word religion for the purposes of this Bible study. You might say, well, I think it's a little bit different than that, Adam. That's fine. I'm just saying that for the purposes of this Bible study and what I'm saying so that you can understand where I'm coming from, I want to define it. I was recently in a meeting, and there were four guys who were 50 and under and six guys who were 65 and older. And that was the meeting. And all through the meeting, and it was a long meeting, like five, six hours long, but all through the meeting, we kept having to say, wait, wait a minute, what do you mean by that word? And then the older guys would say to us, hey, you just said that. Why do you think that's true? Because we had different definitions for the same word. So it's good to be clear about what we mean. So for our purposes, religion, religion is a system of beliefs or actions that either connects you with God, or makes you good. A system of beliefs or actions. So if you believe these things, you believe this, you believe this, you believe that, or you do these things or don't do these things, you know, you give to this charity, you do this penance, you go on this pilgrimage, you don't touch that kind of thing, or you don't say those words, or you do say those words, that will connect you with God. Or some religious beliefs aren't so much concerned about connecting you with God as they are making you a good person, a moral person. Um, if you believe these things, it will help you to be moral. You can have uh, religion in the form of philosophy or ethics. If you do these things or don't do these things, then you will be a good person or it will bring you to a place of morality or holiness or enlightenment. And there are some religions that don't focus on a deity at all. Rather, they focus on human uh, growth and human uh, moving forward into a more moral state. 
Uh, you can think of secularism that way, sometimes has a religious tone. And you can think of religions like Hinduism, you know, where it's just like, you know what, you're just trying to eat each life cycle as they go through a cycle of re reincarnation. You're trying to progress and grow and attain a place where you reach nirvana. So, or there are people who it's not about being a good person, right? It's about connecting with God. And that's the kind of cover your bases sort of religion. Um, I am going to go on this pilgrimage or I am going to do these things. I'm going to check off this box so that when I die, if there is a God, I will be connected with him. It's not real. I don't really care about being a good person. I don't want to be a bad person necessarily, but I also want to just make sure my bases are covered. That's what I see as the general expression of human religion, a system of beliefs or actions that are either designed to connect you with God or to make you a good, moral, or holy person. That's religion. Now, Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, says Jesus stepped onto the boat and crossed over and came into his own town. You might remember last week, Jesus went from where he was in the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, went to the opposite side, delivered two men from demonic possession, but the rest of the people in the region said, Jesus, we don't want you here. Please leave. And so Jesus gets on the boat and leaves. God can work in our lives and we can say we don't want you and he will honor that. He will not force himself on us. He will not force you to believe. Now, in his grace and mercy, he left a witness. The Gospel of Mark tells us that at least one of the men that were freed from demonic possession were left and Jesus gave him the charge, the job of going around and just telling everybody what Jesus did for him. So Jesus didn't abandon these people, but he also honored their request. And he says he went back to his own town, which is probably the town of Capernaum on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It says that some men brought him a man who was paralyzed, lying on a mat, so he couldn't get up and come to Jesus on his own. These people had to bring him to Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, "'Take heart, son,' Your sins are forgiven. And some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. So blasphemy is to speak against God, right? And, and so they're saying, by saying your sins are forgiven, you're, you're taking God's place. You're saying God's not important. I will do it because only God can forgive sins. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to, said to them, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority, to on, uh, authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home, and the crowd saw this, and they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Jesus says to these guys, hey, any person can walk around and say, your sins are forgiven, and your sins are forgiven, and your sins are forgiven. But who can tell somebody who is paralyzed, who can't walk, the only reason he's here is because his friends carried him on a stretcher to me. But get up and walk and go home, and the man gets up and leaves, which is the harder thing. Now, we know the harder thing was what Jesus did on the cross. But in that moment, he is demonstrating his power and his authority. Jesus is what matters. That's so important to know in any conversation about Christianity and religion. 
Jesus is what matters. He saw their faith. Their faith in what? Their faith in faith. Some people just have faith. Oh, I just have faith in the power of belief. Some people have faith in karma or something out there. It was their faith in Jesus that Jesus responded to. Then in verse 3, he responds to the religious people. In this case, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he says, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? What was the evil thought? It was their rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not brand new on the scene. He has been around. His teaching is public. His miracles are public. They have seen him. They know his credentials. The evil in their heart was their rejection of Jesus, God the Son, the Messiah. And in verse 6, Jesus demonstrates his authority. I have authority to forgive sins. I have power to do a healing work and restore lives. Jesus is what matters. Jesus is what matters. That's why when I talk to somebody and they say, well, you know, what's the difference between a Baptist and a Presbyterian and a, uh, you know, do they believe in Jesus? Yes. Maybe we have different ways of meeting, you know, different styles of church. Maybe we have some theological disagreements about different points of doctrine that are, are open-handed issues, things you can agree on and still be a Christian. Sure. But they still believe in Jesus. That's the point that matters. That's why I have had great friendships with people from different faiths, Muslims, Buddhists, uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. You say, wait a minute, I thought Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses were just another Christian denomination. No, they believe something very different about Jesus. They do not believe he is God. They, they do not believe the same things that Jesus proclaimed. Well, what, what about uh, you know, Muslims? Aren't they people of the book too? Oh man, some of the, the best neighbors and the best co-workers I ever had were Muslims. So you will not hear me say uh, I'm not Islamophobic at all. But they don't believe Jesus is God. They believe he is just a man and he is a prophet. But they do not believe that he is God, that he is the Messiah. They do not believe he's the only way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to God but through him. So on that point, that's the point of make or break. But Jesus is what matters. Here's the thing, though. Religious people don't care about Jesus. Religious people and religion cares about systems over people. It says that the people rejoiced when the man was healed. It doesn't say that those religious leaders rejoiced. They didn't care. As if to prove the point, Matthew shares his own story next. Then he says, as Jesus went from there, verse 9, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. You might have heard this before. It's, it's a point that preachers like to kind of make a big deal about. But tax collectors are never popular, and then you have these really lame dad jokes about uh, IRS agents. If you were a tax collector then, right? Like I understand that somebody who works for the IRS is just doing their job, right? I like paved roads. I like, uh, you know, when I see the, uh, the Na Air National Guard flying over Portland, uh, I like to know they're up there. Uh, you know, I, I like to pay our teachers, all of those things, right? 
so I understand that an that IRS agent or a state tax or whatever, they're just doing their job. But if you were a tax collector back then, you were a collaborator with the occupying government because you weren't collecting taxes for your people, for the benefit of your people. You were collecting taxes for the Roman Empire who had conquered and occupied your nation. And you didn't get paid for it, at least not in a major way. And so what they would do is if you had to collect $10 from a person, you made your money by saying, hey, you need to give me $15 for the Roman taxes. Um, so you made money based off of how much you could skim off the top. And there was probably a little bit of cheating the other way too. Like let's say that uh, uh, the Romans said, hey, there's 50 people that live in this town and you know there's really 55. And so you keep that taxes from the extra five people, right? That's how they made their money. So these guys are cheats, swindlers, traitors, collaborators. Plus, if you're a traitor and a collaborator and you're cheating everybody in town and you're extorting from everybody in town, you're not gonna be super popular. So who are his friends? We're going to find that out. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Other parts of the Gospels tell us when you have this sort of collection of people, there were also prostitutes there. Like there was all kinds of folks there. Why? Because they're the only people who will be your friends. Other collaborators. It says sinners. That's an interesting one. It could be that just these are people who are on the outcast of society, uh, you know, people who were serial adulterers, um, people who um, had other crimes going against them, uh, people people didn't want to be around. But it also probably means non-Jewish people were there. Uh, that this way that the word is used in, in the original Greek was not a word that Jews would use about themselves, even if you were a bad person. And so the implication is that you know, if you've been occupied by the Romans for a while, right, and so maybe you've got somebody who's not Jewish, but they are in the area because of business or trade, or maybe their dad was a, uh, a Roman soldier, and now they're, you know, living in the area, but they're not Jewish, and so they're, you know, they're just there. So who are your friends? Other collaborators, other sinners, you know, people on the, on the fringes of society. So then your reputation gets even worse. And it says that Jesus is having dinner with them. He said, Matthew, give this life up and come follow me. And then he goes and has dinner with these other people. And don't you think that he was calling those other people to follow him too? Maybe not in the same way that he called Matthew. Matthew had a specific job Jesus had for him. But he's calling them, hey, come follow me. Come and return to God. What does it say then? Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. The sick need a doctor. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not called, come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus quotes to these religious leaders one of their own prophets, a prophet named Hosea. And he was speaking to the people of Israel, and he was saying, hey, you guys are so far from God that it's as if 
you were God's wife, but you had left him and just become a prostitute. That was the message of Hosea to the people of Israel. And he says, you have all these religious systems and practices that you think make you holy, and you do all of these sacrifices and rituals, and, and you fast here, and you feast there, and you do all of these things, and you think God will be happy with that. But God wants you to live in mercy. He wants you to live in justice. He wants you to live in truth, and you, you don't do any of those things. And Jesus says the same things to these religious leaders in his day. Religious systems care about the systems over the people. The religious leaders do not care about Matthew's life change. Here's a guy who was a collaborator, a traitor, a, a sinner. He was a bad guy. Let's, let's not gloss this over. Matthew was a bad guy. And now he's walked away from that. He's left that to follow Jesus, this rabbi, who might be the Messiah. Think about that. Imagine if somebody was the worst drug dealer in, in the neighborhood, or somebody was, the, was a human trafficker, or somebody was a, an abuser, and they, they were living in that life, and they just walked away from all of it to follow Jesus. Wouldn't that be great? Hey, the worst guy in town is done. They're not doing that anymore. They've changed everything. That's awesome. We, I love to hear that when somebody's life has turned around, right? Hey, you, you remember, you know, you have a neighbor. Let's say you have a neighbor and their kid is just in, in just all kinds of a mess in life. And then something happens and they turn their life around. Isn't that awesome? I'm excited to hear that. But these religious guys don't care at all about Matthew's life change. They don't care that Matthew has turned away. And, and then here's Jesus who's just gotten Matthew to stop betraying his people. And now he's meeting with other people. Who, hey, maybe Jesus can get them to stop, right? Wouldn't that be good for society if the tax collectors that are collaborating with your occupiers quit their jobs? Wouldn't that be good for society if these sinners stop sinning? Wouldn't that be good for society if the human trafficking stopped happening? Instead, they're offended that Jesus would go and sit with these people because they care about their religious system. They care about, I actually think this, I think they care about Jesus destroying their superiority barrier. I don't know if I made that up or if somebody else came up with that, but their superiority barrier, what is that? It's this invisible line that they have between themselves and these people that makes them feel superior. This line that they have between themselves and these other people that makes them feel superior. I am better than they are because of my religious system. These things that I believe or these actions that I do or don't do. And that makes me better than someone else. It's the superiority barrier. It's how I can feel good about myself. It's how I can feel like my place is secure in society. Religious people love these things. Because if you can live by a system of rules or beliefs your whole life, and then somebody like Matthew, who has ignored all of this stuff, who has not done anything, he hasn't kept any of the laws. It's, it's a pretty safe bet that Matthew didn't go to synagogue. It's a pretty safe bet that Matthew, for the feasts like Passover, didn't go down to Jerusalem 
and didn't partake in all the rituals. And yet, if you can do all of those rituals and all of those rules and keep all those commands, and then Matthew can come in and be part of the group after doing none of that, then how does that make me any better? Religious people hate that kind of thing. And what about the sick? They didn't care that the paralyzed man was healed. They didn't care that Matthew was turning his life around. Jesus says, I've come to heal the sick. These people are sick with sin. They are sick with the results of sin. You know, there are people who have um, life debilitating health issues that are the direct result of sin. You know, substance abuse or um, rebellion or pride, and then it leads to an injury or an illness. And, and, and then there's not, not to mention the internal, the inside sickness that life that's full of bitterness and resentment and pride and arrogance and rebellion and all these things build in a person time after time after time. Just like too much cholesterol clogs the arteries of the heart, too much sin clogs the arteries of the soul. Jesus said, I've come to, come to heal the sick. And they don't care at all. They don't care about the paralyzed man. They don't care about Matthew. They don't care about Matthew's friends who need the same soul healing that Matthew has just experienced. They don't care. Jesus cares. That's why Jesus matters. Now, you might say, ah, that's so true. And isn't that good that as Christians, we aren't religious people. We are people of faith and grace that we don't have any rules that we have to keep, that the only reason we are saved is the grace of God, the undeserved favor of God, and Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. I don't owe God anything because of everything that Jesus did, and it's nothing that I have done. Isn't that wonderful? I'm so glad that Matthew includes this other group here. In verse 18, excuse me, verse 14, it says, then John's disciples came and asked him. Now, we're not told, and I don't think Matthew is particularly concerned with telling us, was this happening the same night at the very same dinner? Or did it happen in a, in a relatively similar time, like maybe the next morning or the next week? We don't know. But he's telling it here to connect it. And I'm so glad that he does. He says, then John's disciples came and asked who were John's disciples? John the Baptist. They were the ones who, when John the Baptist was down at the Jordan River, calling people to repentance, saying, prepare your hearts because the Messiah is coming. Turn away from your sins and be ready for the work that God is doing for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were the ones that followed John. They were the ones who said, we are going to not only going to get baptized and get ourselves ready, but we are going to devote ourselves to following you so that we can serve God the way that you serve God. And then when Jesus appeared on the scene, John said, behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Messiah. And some of his disciples went and followed. You know, Andrew, the brother of Peter, was down there as one of the disciples, and he went and grabbed other people. And, and, and some of Jesus' disciples were formerly disciples of John. And the disciples of John are a group that get mentioned occasionally in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Uh, Apollos, Apollos, who was uh, one of the great evangelistic preachers of the early church, 
mentioned in the book of Acts and in some of the New Testament books. And it says in the book of Acts that he was an apo- a disciple of John. So he came to the city of Ephesus and he was preaching, but he only knew about the baptism of John. And then this awesome Christian couple, uh, Priscilla and her husband Aquila, they, they pulled him aside and they explained to him fully about all that Jesus had done. And he believed in Jesus's death and resurrection. And he said, hey, I'm going to keep preaching, but I, I know the full truth now. These guys knew that the religious systems of their day were broken. They knew that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. But when the Messiah came and John said, there's the Messiah, I must decrease and he must increase. I need to become less of a thing and he needs to become everything. They didn't leave John. And when John was put in prison, they still met as a group and said, we are the disciples of John. We aren't going to follow this Jesus guy because we follow John. Even though John had told them he's the Messiah. Even though John had said he's the one. And it says, they came and they asked, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Fasting in this case probably means not eating food for a meal or for a day or for a few days. Uh, We often think of it also in expanding other things that we don't do, like uh, during Lent, which I'm not a a Lent guy, but I know that people, you know, we just went through the Lent season and and there's a lot of people I know who do it. you know, but they say, hey, I'm not going to, I'm not going to watch movies during Lent. Uh, I'm going to give up chocolate during Lent. I'm going to, you know, whatever it is. This idea of not doing something as an act of worship or as an act of discipline or as an, a, a way of focusing myself towards God. Uh, maybe I don't eat uh, lunch every Tuesday and every Tuesday I take a special time of prayer. Instead of eating, I pray. Um, the, the whole tradition of Easter eggs actually comes from this idea that during Lent, people wouldn't eat meat, including eggs. And so then what would happen is they would, um, they would kind of, uh, as, as it got close to the end of Lent, they would hard boil the eggs. And then they would have a bunch of eggs ready to go to make stuff uh, for the big feast you would have at the end of Lent. Uh, you can actually go to our website, uh, not our website, excuse me, our Facebook page, Faith on Hills uh, Facebook page. And uh, at Easter, I posted a, a blog on there uh, that explains how Easter is not a uh, co-opted pagan holiday. Uh, Easter eggs are not co-opted pagan things. Uh, They actually have Christian roots. And so this idea is, though, that they're saying, hey, we fast, and the Pharisees, the religious people, they fast. Now they're linking themselves. These people who had been followers of John, and who did John call out? He called out the Pharisees. He called out the scribes. He called out the religious people. And now the disciples of John are linking themselves with the people that their rabbi had called out. Hey, we're the followers of John. Well, the John called out these guys, but now you're linking up with them. Well, we both fast. And then, he's, then they say, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus answered them, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, man, if you're at your friend's wedding, you don't fast. If you know your friend is going to get married next Saturday, you don't say, I will fast next Saturday. He said, there's nothing wrong with fasting. There's nothing wrong with that as a practice of discipline or worship or repentance or whatever. But you don't do it on Christmas. You don't fast on Thanksgiving. Those are are days of celebration and feasting. 
And he says, I'm with them right now. And they're rejoicing. When I'm not with them, that'll be the moment where it'll be time and appropriate for Christians to fast. And I don't know about doing it during the 40 days leading up to Holy Week, like Lent, but I think that there is value if you are physically able. There are people, people in our church, who for physical reasons cannot and should not fast. But I think there is value in saying, today I won't eat lunch. Today I will, uh, I'm going to, instead of, you know, instead of Netflix and chill tonight, I'm going to take some time and pray, and I'm going to read my Bible. There's value in that. But he's saying, hey, I'm here right now, and this is this moment of celebration. The Messiah is here, and we're ready to go. And why aren't you with us? But you're more concerned with your fasting and your religiousness, even though they wouldn't have considered them. The disciples of John would not have considered themselves among the religious people. They would have said that's the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Jesus is kind of pointing out that they've become what they, what they had formerly called out. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Jesus is, is giving them a picture. I don't know about you, but my kids, it's getting to be summertime or nicer weather, and it'll change. So in the winter, when it's rainy and everything, I do my kids' laundry, and I, I have to check their jeans for where the mud stains are, right? Because it's wet, they're out on the playground, or they're playing in the backyard, and there's going to be some kind of dried dirt or mud somewhere, and so I get the spray uh, out, spray it, put it in the washing machine. That changes here in a month or so when things dry out, they're outside more, and then all of a sudden, instead of those brown mud or dirt stains, it's green grass stains, right? So you spray those and whatever, and then you see in their knees where their knees are starting to wear away in their jeans, and uh, we don't do this anymore, but when I was a kid, my mom would patch my jeans. If my jeans had a hole in them, my mom would get one of those iron-on patches and, and you'd run it there. What Jesus is saying is, this is back before, you know, they could go to Target or whatever and, and get a new pair of jeans. You got a tear in your, your, your robe or in your cloak, you patch it up. But what they would do is they would take these patches and they would wash them a few times so they had time to shrink. Because if you take an unshrunk piece of cloth, sew it in, and then as it starts to shrink over washing and time, it'll actually pull at the cloth that you've sewed it onto even more, and it'll make the tear worse. So any patch that you've ever used has been pre-shrunk to account for this. Then he says, no one pours new wine into an old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, and the wine will run out, and the skins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, a wineskin is exactly what you would think of. It's sort of a, a animal skin bladder. Uh, you, you know, you see people in old you know, movies depicting old times. You could have water in there. You could have wine in there. It was for travel. It was for storage. But if, if it was old, it got less flexible, stretchable. Uh, the skin would start to be more weakened by hardness or brittling or whatever. And so I, I don't claim to understand the science of this fully, but the, uh, the new wine, 
apparently had a chemical reaction that just kind of was more abrasive to things. And so if you had a wineskin that was old and, uh, you know, had been degraded by the sun and heat and everything, and then all of a sudden the chemicals of, uh, you know, the, the, the chemistry of having newly, you know, newly fermented wine put in the skin, it would cause them to burst. So you had to make new skins, and that's where the new wine went. And if uh, you had old skins, you're like, hey, I'm not going to put new wine in that because it'll cause it to burst. What Jesus is trying to say to them is this. He's saying, you're trying to take this new thing, the kingdom of heaven, the work that Jesus was doing, and it's like an unshrunk patch, and you're trying to sew it onto this old thing, the religious system of the Pharisees, of the teachers of the law, and he said it's not going to work. It's just going to make things worse. You're trying to pour the new wine of God's work, the new work of God's Holy Spirit into this old container, and it's not going to work. It's just going to burst. That's what he's saying to John's disciples. And in every generation, God does a new work. In every generation, God does a new work. And then what happens is people have a choice. Do I move forward in the new work that God is doing? Or do I try to take it and apply it to a religious system? America is a very religious country, even to this day. Don't believe the story that says America is becoming more secular. I don't believe that for a minute. It actually might be more secular, but it's still very religious because we're very good at hiding our religiosity. If you think of religion just as like a church or a mosque, and you don't think that secular people can be incredibly religious, you're incorrect. Because what did, how did we define religion? It's either a system of beliefs or actions to connect you with God or a system of beliefs or actions to make you a good person. Secular humanism is a religious system. It's just one, like Hinduism or uh, other systems, that uh, says we're not particularly interested in a deity. We're just interested in becoming good people. And so secular humanism can be just as religious as anything else. Here is our systems and standards, our actions or inactions that make us a good or a bad person. Some of the most religious people I know are atheists. But they have beliefs about what makes you good or bad. And just like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they have a superiority barrier. Because I do this or I believe that, that makes me a better person and therefore I am better than someone else. And I can sit in my superiority towards them. And you see this all the time. That there are people who are secularly religious and they think because they are woke, they are superior, or because they are not woke, they are superior. Woke, what does that even mean? I mean, I know what it originally means, and then there's what every person defines it in their own mind. But my point is that we take things like that, and there are people who think I am a superior, good, moral person because I am woke, or I am a superior person because I am anti-woke. Americans are very good at being religious. And it's either a system so I can connect with God. I'll do these things so I'm okay with God. On Sunday or Saturday or whenever, I will go to church. I will go to mass. I will go to mosque. I will do what I need to do so I'm okay with God. 
and then I will go out Monday through Saturday and maybe Sunday afternoon too, and I will live however I want to live. Do you know where the number one place for the consumption of pornography is in America? It's in Utah, which is an incredibly religious state. The state of Utah has per capita the number one percentage usage of pornography. You know where the number one place for uh, worldwide is? Pakistan, one of the most religious places in the world in terms of laws and what's forced in society and all of those things. People have these systems of superiority. And the disciples of John had shed one religious system. They had moved away from the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law, and they had followed John and said, yes, we want the kingdom of God. We want the new thing God is doing. But then as time went on, they just created another one. Or they returned to the old one and tried to adapt the new thing to the old one, and it doesn't work. I grew up in a group of churches that were part of a new work that God was doing. And it was a new work of grace. And it was, it was this thing that God was doing, calling people to him, calling people back to him. And one of the big things that they did was that the, the group of churches was started among young people in the 70s. And churches in the 70s at that time, you know, you had to wear the suit and tie. It was very traditional. You sang out of the hymnal, the whole thing. And they said, hey, um, you know, that's fine, but we don't wear suits and ties. And, uh, and some of them, in fact, there was a church that was near the beach down in California, and there they were these people that were coming to faith in Jesus, but you know what? They're like, I don't wear suit and ties. In fact, I don't wear shoes. They were like beach surfing hippies. And so they would go uh, camp out on the beach, they'd surf, and then they'd walk to church Sunday morning because that's where Christians went, and they were like, hey, we believe in Jesus too. And there's a, a, a kind of a famous folklore story of, a, of this church down there where some of the more like you know older folks in the church one morning put up signs that basically said no shoes, no shirt, no service. Like you have to wear shoes. And the reason was that the church had just put brand new carpet in. And they said, hey, we, we don't want these people walking in barefoot with sand and dirt all over their feet because they've been out on the beach and then they ruin our carpet. And, and the pastor saw this as he came to church and he tore the signs down. And then he told them afterwards, he said, we will tear out the carpet if that's what it takes to bring people to Jesus. And that's kind of an ethos that I want to live by. Because we can establish ourselves as superior. I am morally superior because I live in conservative principles. That's the kind of Christianity I grew up in. Or I am morally superior because I stand in progressive, you know, forward-thinking, inclusive Christianity. That's the Christianity a lot of my generation has shifted to. Neither are true. There is no system that makes me better. In fact, in the book of Galatians, the Bible teaches that the whole point of the Old Testament law was to show that we couldn't keep it. Jesus quoted Hosea. Hosea's whole ministry as a prophet to Israel was to say, you guys have done all of these things. You have the sacrifices, you have the feasts, and yet it, it's like you're playing a prostitute instead of being in relationship with God. The religious people didn't care about the healed person. The religious people didn't care about the life change. And John's disciples were among them. And there are Christians who are like that. They experience the new work of God, the grace of God, and then they try to go back to the old thing, which never works. Do we call people to life change? Absolutely we do. 
Do we call people to walk in the ways of Jesus? 100%. And does that mean turning away from the, uh, the evils of this world? Totally. But do we care about, okay, you need to check this box, this box, and this box? No. Because like we talked about last week, the work of Jesus is messy. But if I care more about people than systems, I'm going to be a lot more comfortable in that mess. And I'm going to lose my religion. And I'm going to focus on faith in Jesus because Jesus is what matters. And that's the invitation we have. If you are a religious person, it will not save you. Only Jesus saves. If you're an irreligious person, Jesus offers hope. And if you're a believer, we always have to guard against becoming a religious person. God bless you. We'll see you this week in the small groups. Our online content is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our Facebook page. You just have to search Faith on Hill. And we'll see you next week as we gather together and continue to study the Gospel of Matthew.